Hello, everybody. Today's episode of DPS is going to be a continuation on the themes that we have been exploring in earnest over the past several weeks following the general election, following the uh, the victory of Biden and Harris. It's probably time for the left to do some soul searching about what has happened and and what is is going to happen what is likely to happen over the next four years i started that off by having a really interesting conversation with uh, a couple of or two interesting conversations with a couple of progressive journalists i had on david dan to talk about american progressivism where we stand with respect to uh, the election in the wake of the election and then i had on dan marins to to give us what i called a cold splash of water to the face about where we sit as a left are some of the stories and the narratives that we tell ourselves about the future electoral prospects true today i'm having a follow-up to those two discussions with thomas frank thomas has done the podcast circuit quite a bit at this point you guys might have caught him on a number of shows that he's been on over the past couple of months but i really wanted to kind of uh, have a next level conversation on dps with thomas which is something that I try to do. I try to take, I try to go beyond that kind of intro, uh, kind of a 101 perspective that you get on some other podcasts that's really important. And I try to build a, a much more kind of specific case with my guests uh, today. And so having kind of laid the foundations on other, uh, other terrific podcasts, I thought that uh, we would kind of give uh, an advanced level seminar, if you will, on populism, on the history of populism, on the, on the contemporary present of populism. And I think we're pretty successful doing that. Uh, Thomas, of course, himself is a progressive journalist. Uh, he's not a socialist. He's not a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist by any stretch of the imagination. But if you haven't caught on by now, I'm trying to to have on a number of commentators uh, outside of our little democratic socialist niche in order to kind of help contextualize the moment, figure out where the hell we are, where the fuck we're going. Because I don't think anybody really right now has a satisfactory answer to those questions. But uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation today. I myself uh, nerded out on all the history of populism. I come from Western Virginia, not West Virginia, but the mountains, the Appalachian and Blue Ridge Mountains of, of Virginia. The uh, populist readjuster uh, tradition legacy is, uh, is rich here. Although you won't find much of it in the contemporary political discourse, as Thomas has has written extensively about in his uh, in his throughout his adult life, you know, starting with um, uh, "What's the Matter with Kansas," you could have written a similar book uh, called "What's the Matter with Virginia?" What's the matter with West Virginia? Why is it that one of the hotbeds of what I call hillbilly populism has turned to Trump land? You know, that's a, that's a really important question that not enough people are asking right now. You know, these are these are things that uh, are, have been themes of the show, but I'm glad to be able to take them up specifically. So I know you guys are going to enjoy this interview very much. Thomas's work, Thomas Frank's work has also, you know, encouraged me to think a little bit outside of the, of the Marxist uh, socialist bubble and, and explore some topics that I'm going to continue thinking through. Right. And which is to say that the Marxian movement is is really built on a very specific political economic context. Right. And Marx wrote, um, you know, as a result of his studies in, in like the, the early to pre-industrial, like Manchester, England, like society, right? That was his political economic context. And there's another tradition though. There's another tradition of radicalism that people like, um, you know, uh, Matt Carp has tapped into, uh, other people that I've had on the show over the years has tapped into a more kind of agrarian populist, which is like the small R Republican tradition, of like, you know, quasi Jeffersonian, uh, or if you ask, uh, Christian Parenti, uh, Hamiltonian, you know, kind of politics. And, and this is homegrown. This is as American as apple pie, as they say. And it's something that I think that the socialist movement needs to explore a lot more. How do we bring in people like farmers? How do we bring in small proprietors? Obviously, how do we bring in gig workers who, by the way, have their economic lives structured far more similarly to like, say, a small business person than a traditional industrial trade union worker, right? Um, these are really thorny questions that the left needs to take up quite seriously. Uh, and, and the only way we're going to do that is, is if we break outside of our kind of a uh, grad seminar, you know, our, our grad seminar rooms and, and get out into the, the, the real lived world of, of, of working people and other people who are, who, who necessarily must comprise any kind of coalition that's going to be victorious in the coming decades. So these are themes we're going to be returning to much, much more. If you enjoy this program, if you think it's important, 
Um, if you've benefited from it in any way, if you think that the world needs more uh, episodes of DPS, uh, you know, I, I encourage you to support this broader socialist media ecosystem and and this one in particular. So head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. You know, we've got a lot of work to do. I know many of us. Uh, it's it's very painful to think and talk about politics these days, and, and and that's no different for me. You guys will know that I took a five or six week hiatus a couple of months ago. You know, um, it's a difficult kind of transitional moment for a lot of people for a lot of reasons, uh, but we have to keep up this work, and we have uh, a, a, a quite a bit of work cut out for us in the coming four years with the Biden administration shaping up the way that it is. This kind of uh, diversity industrial complex, you know, neoliberal. 2.0 uh, world that they are creating and crafting for themselves is going to challenge the left in new ways. It's going to challenge, it's going to present challenges before us that uh, the, the kind of mainstream academic left is, is just wholly unequipped to, to, to grapple with. And so, you know, this kind of work is more important than ever, uh, no matter how painful it may be, no matter how difficult it may be in our present moment. So I appreciate all of the support that I get from patrons past and present. And I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. All right. Enjoy the interview. And that concludes. <clears throat> And that concludes today's interview with Thomas Frank. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I. Boy. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And today we're going to be continuing on some of the themes that we have been discussing over the past several weeks following the election, uh, following last week's really fantastic interview with Dan Marin's HuffPost writer. Uh, we're going to continue that cold splash of water on the face of, of the left, the liberal left, the center, and, and, and all the rest of it. We're going, to, we're going to lay down some diss tracks on some historians, on some journalists, and we've got the man to do it. Uh, he's an astonishingly interesting uh, accomplished guy. He he writes more than most of us can read. Thomas Frank, thanks for coming on the show. Adam, it's my pleasure. Did you say lay down some diss tracks? Is We're going to lay said? down some diss tracks. I was going to say that's what the kids are saying these days. <laughs> I've never heard that one. You know, before. I'm 35, and so that was that was cool. Probably 10, 15 years ago. I I, I wouldn't say that's like say what you you, you mentioned off air. You have a a daughter in her what early 20s. Yeah. I wouldn't imagine yeah, yeah. that's what she's saying these days. But that's what the kids <laughs> said at one point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what the rappers do when they're battling each other, you know, talking about each other's mama. We're going to do a little of that today. Uh, to, All to right, that. I'm game. Let's do it. Let's yeah, lay so those diss tracks down. One of the earliest diss tracks uh, you wrote was, uh, of course, What's the Matter with Kansas? You followed that up with a number of works about, you know, the kind of history of the, the third way and the move, the turn away from economic populism, uh, you know. And so your, your, your latest work, The People Know, is probably, you know, it's... Would you say it's the summation of that journey that you took up in oh, earnest yeah. with what's the matter with Kansas? Absolutely. It actually I so populism has been the motif of my career since the uh since the beginning. I, I studied it in graduate school and became kind of entranced with it. And I I think I'm in good company there. There's a lot of other um uh a lot of other people for whom it is the populism is the great sort of idea that they were like, you know, you remember Christopher Lash, the historian, he was a big deal for me. Uh, and populism became for him a kind of obsession as he, uh, as he got, as he aged. Right. Me exactly. too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you, you can't, you know, the, the thing is it's, <clears throat> you didn't force populism on the agenda, if, if you will. I mean, the, the, the it's oh, very, no, very much exactly. In the exactly. Yeah. It um, was, it's a reaction to what I saw going on around me. So I, I, um, you know, I've been writing about it for a long time. I know what it is. Uh, you know, it's, I'm from Kansas originally and in Kansas, it means a very particular thing. You know, we know what populism was. And uh, when you see the word being used in the media, and this is just here in the last, oh, you know, five or six years when the word has just become um, uh, equated with, uh, you know, racist demagoguery. You know, and that's the definition of the word now. Uh, and, and that has always irritated me. And I finally decided to do something about it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so I historicized I historicized the uh, the would be historians. 
It's really it's 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 absolutely important to do that. I mean, I think you know um, we're gonna we're gonna go deep into the history. I myself uh, was a somewhat trained historian in my PhD years before I left and became a dilettante. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, you uh, you and me both, my brother. Yeah, yeah. and so I, I've I've dug, I've dug in the archives. We're gonna talk. I, I'm I'm really excited to have you on. I've I've been you know looking at some of the stuff you've done. I, I want to talk about the Wilmington race riots, the Wilmington insurrection. I've done some uh, archival work on that, which is just a. Is that, is that right? You violence. have? I have. Yeah, a little bit at Duke. Uh, and uh, and it's just the, the, the kind of primary source documents that I laid my hands on in those archives were just I mean, it was it was a, speaking a cold splash uh, water to the face to, to think yeah, yeah. To, to imagine the populists and the fusionists as as the real racists, as as you know, a lot of contemporary takers like to say now, by the way, know, so uh, can like I just the Labor you? Party? They're the real racists. And it's like, whoa, you've never met, the, you know, the, the yeah. Britain first type. We are living it's in same. such a crazy time that yeah. that word has has gotten uh, flipped upside down like that yeah and uh, uh, and i guess we're gonna but we're gonna have to take a couple steps back to get into that subject because that's i mean this is a this is a a big deal what you just mentioned for sure um and uh so people should know what populism was it was a the last big third party movement in america uh it started well it got named in kansas it, it came out of a group called the farmers alliance which was like a farmers union kind of group uh the farmers alliance was uh, uh, pretty radical for its day. The populists were, were a radical party. They were a left-wing party, farmer labor party. Um, they, you know, wanted to, and they, they were explicitly class oriented. They talked about themselves as the great coming together of, of the working class. You know, that's what they, how they understood themselves. And, um, they uh, in the South, they were the, I, I should just take a pause here and say the word populism comes from this group. It's not just a word that came from, heaven and we can use it however we want it, it is it was actually invented by members of this group populism they invented the word to describe this left-wing third-party movement and uh uh ironically given the way the word is used today they were the exact opposite of the you know of what we think of as populists they were these were people who um wanted to extend the franchise not to restrict it these were people who you know to give women the vote that sort of thing these are people that wanted to reform the process you know they're pretty left-wing okay mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. south uh populism was it, its strongest states were on the plains and in the west but it was also strong in the south uh they were uh because the south is obviously an agricultural region and um a lot of sharecroppers in the south and uh, populism was never able to win many elections in the South because the, the powers that be in those days, in the 1890s, the powers that be would use every corrupt trick in the book, every method known to the mind of 19th century man to stop them from winning. And uh, the, 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 uh, the power that ruled the South in those days was called the, um, the Bourbon Democrats, the conservative Democrats. Uh, and they were explicitly racist. Uh, they were the, the the sort of bulwark of the uh, Bourbon Democrats was was the ideology known as uh, white solidarity. The idea that your interest as a white person was paramount to your interest to anything else, anything else you might be concerned about, that you had to stick with other white people. You had to vote for the white candidates and you had to as a race, you had to stick together. And, and this, had, this had very strong political economic roots. I mean, we need to point back to that, of course, right? I mean, yep, because yep. because of well, the, it was after the Civil War, so after the, you know, after after the Reconstruction War, is over, Recon and Reconstruction was a, 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 an economic threat. Yeah, to, this was to a the huge dominance uh, of the planter exactly. class, right? And so yep. this this white solidarity was a reaction against the federal quote imposition yep. uh, of of uh, installing these these uppity, you know, uh, carpetbaggers well, and and black uh, politicians, you know, yeah, uh, letting black uh, by people the way, vote. By the so way, they, they had you know, a majority, right? You know, yeah, uh, there are lots of places in the South where blacks were in the majority. And if you let if they, you know, if you didn't, if the whites didn't stick together in this kind of airtight way, um, you know, you would uh, you'd have these these people would overthrow the government or they would vote for a not overthrow. I mean, vote for a different. You know, yeah, how dare something. they vote for somebody <laughs> in their interest? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. might do something that they might do something that that that, that it inconveniences. The planter class, you know, let's put it that way. So anyhow, that's the doctrine of white uh, solidarity. And 
the populists were, again, this radical third party movement. And they uh, a lot of their leaders were Southerners and they came to this to, to the South and they made a really interesting um, offer. They said, and at the time, blacks could still vote in a lot of places in the South. They had not been disenfranchised everywhere yet, only in uh, a few places. And so they said to uh, to these black voters who were traditionally supporters of the Republican Party, they said to them, support us, support the populists. And we're going to get the white farmers and the black farmers together because their interest as farmers is more important than their interest as whites or as blacks. Their class position is more important than their race, which is a really interesting thing. And they uh, they said this explicitly. They said it openly. They wrote articles about it. They gave speeches about it. This was their uh, the, the deal that they offered to Southern uh, farmers. And uh, this is in the early 1890s. And you can just guess how this was received. <laughs> this, this was, uh, well, it was powerful, right? This is a powerful message. Uh, it's a terrifying message if you are the uh, owners of the South, if you are the ruling class of the South. This is basically people saying, let's come together and overthrow the ruling elites of the South. You know, this is absolutely terrifying. And they, uh, the ruling of the elites of the South uh, came down on populism like a ton of bricks and uh, would, as I said, use every kind of corrupt method to make sure that these people didn't didn't win, uh, and they cheated them out of election after election. Okay, and I think what's In, interesting there is there's some continuity there, right? Because the Confederacy really was a dictatorship of the planter class in a lot of ways. There's been some yeah. really fascinating works that have come out on this to understand how how fractured that society was before the war and during the war, and that there was a tremendous amount of terror that had to be wielded on the population to yeah. provide soldiers to provide. Yeah, uh, but you know. I, I have to t- I have to tell you I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, get into that with you because I never studied the Confederacy. I went to college at, <laughs> U- at the University of Virginia, and it's like everybody else was studying the Confederacy, that's and true. I was like, no thanks. Yeah, well, you end up <laughs> I'm like, from that- Kansas for God's sake. I am not interested. That's right. That's right. You end up studying like battle history, right? Not like yep, social yep, economic yep. history. That that stuff yep. is is relatively new. Oh, it was, but it was extremely there. popular in those days. Yeah. Oh, uh, huge, and, and, huge. Uh, and and I and I so I I was like determined to never study that stuff. So I'm just going to leave that up to you. If you say that, then that's okay, fine. I think that's what's interesting, right? Is that there was some continuity there in the kind of class uh, social domination of of the planters and and that kind of social conflagration. Yeah, well, you could argue that that kept, that, that they maintained that power up until the 1960s. I mean, you could argue that they maintain it today, you know, the, the, uh, uh, but what they did to populism is really interesting because this is the, you know, there, before the civil rights movement, uh, there were all these sort of, um, you know, romantic liberal historians of the South. I'm thinking of people like C. Van Woodward. I, I don't get me wrong. I really like C. Van Woodward. Great guy. Right. I really like the way he writes history, really admire him. But, but you can't say, write like that anymore. It's to say, right? Like he's a product of it. Even yeah, he's a product oh, of, his oh, of course, he's a product of the 30s. But mm. he, for him, populism was the one bright spot between the end of Reconstruction. Well, the civil rights movement hadn't happened yet. It was the only bright spot since the end of Reconstruction in Southern history. Uh, uh, w. B. Du Bois uh, said the same thing. This was the only, you know, the only time in Southern history after Reconstruction when there was a glimmer of a chance that blacks and whites, that black and white working people would come together against uh, their uh, mutual oppressors. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that was a kind of a standard view. Anyhow, so let's get into the details here. The only Southern state where the populists managed to prevail was North Carolina. And uh, they did it by what was called fusion with the uh, local Republican Party. The Republican Party at the time was the party to which most African-American voters were still loyal. And so the populace struck a deal with the Republicans in North Carolina. They called themselves fusionists. And between them, by the way, this is what you used to do in the 19th century when you had three party systems, which was pretty common back then. Uh, instead of a two-party system, you'd have a three-party system, and two of the parties would gang up on the, the third one. And that's what they did in North Carolina, and they succeeded, and they won the governor's race, and they sent a populist to the U.S. Senate, and they controlled the state legislature. And they did all these things. One of the things that they did when they were in control of the state legislature was they allowed home rule in uh, 
cities and counties in North Carolina, uh, with the uh, uh, immediate result that in the places where blacks were in the majority, they were able to win elections and to control uh, local governments. And this was <laughs> absolutely terrifying to the, uh, you know, to the masters of North Carolina, the Bourbon Democrats, as I mentioned. And they went a little bit crazy. <laughs> and they did something a little bit nuts. And uh, uh, now, uh, take a step back here to my personal life. I studied populism in graduate school, but I didn't study populism in North Carolina. I didn't study populism in the South. I knew not very much about it. I mean, I'd read the big, you know, the, the sort of overview books about it, but I hadn't got into the weeds. And one day I was down there in uh, Raleigh and I was writing about a uh, fast food strike that was going on in Raleigh in the night. It was in 2013. And uh, I happened to have some time to kill. And so I went into the North Carolina History Museum, which is right there across the street from the Capitol or something like that. And, uh, and I went in there and I'm looking at exhibits and there's one about what they call the Wilmington race riot. And, I, and, and they, the exhibit says it wasn't actually a race riot. It was a military coup against an elected municipal government. And you uh, said, wait, what, what, what? Like, what? <laughs> what yeah. the hell? And then yeah. you start reading down into the exhibit, and this municipal government is what they refer to as a fusionist government. And I'm like, wait a second. I know what that is, right? Because that's populism. That's That was a term that they used to use. To, they did that in Kansas, too. They refer, would refer to them as fusionists. In Kansas, they fused with the local Democratic Party, but that's a different. We'll save that for another day. But uh, uh, so I, I knew I, I instantly was 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 uh, was absolutely um, fascinated by this. And when it came time to write this this book about populism, which I wrote in the last two years, uh, I went and you know dug into that a whole lot because one of the things that you often hear nowadays when people talk about populism, they'll often connect the word authoritarianism with it. And they'll connect the word racist with it. They'll connect the word bigot with it. And it's like, wait a second. Uh, this situation in Wilmington, in Wilmington, North Carolina, is precisely the opposite of that. It is a, a populist Republican fusionist government getting overthrown by force of arms, by force of racist arms, by a white racist militia. I mean, this and this really happened. Just, this just, is like it's, it's, it's the it's the exact it's, opposite of the kind of uh, of what everyone the, tells you. The social is. imaginary of pop. It's it's the mob. It's the rule by the unruly yep, yep. mob. And it's like and actually this is, this historically is, the, 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 un- the mob overthrowing populism. Absolutely, slaughtering uh, dozens of, of citizens, pushing out the government, and all the rest of it. So my yeah. my story and is. So, that, but wait, isn't that incredible? And and uh, and there's there's a reason why uh, this story is still not widely known. And the, first of all, is because it's such as as you and I want to hear your your account of this, by the way. But this is my theory theory about it. Is first of all because it's in, it's incredibly unpleasant to research the, the the racist language that these people used at the time was over the top, outrageous. You can't believe what they were, what they did, and and you know the mass murder of it, all the, you know that kind of thing. But second of all, the fact that they were that it is so contradictory to the way we want to understand populism. We nowadays we need populism to have been a, a fascist movement. And it wasn't. It was it was the opposite. And this episode is one of the most dramatic ways of of pointing that out. Okay. Over to you, Adam. No, no, I no, you're hey, you're you're uh you're the expert here. I just to me it's Yeah, but you said you, you did archival research. I did, I did. Uh, it's extraordinarily unflattering to the 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 class that's by the way still very much in power throughout the south i mean that's the other thing too right i mean you're talking this is this is akin to a kind of social historical tr- trauma similar to you know nazi post nazi germany sort of reconstruction right to to yeah. to have a, a ruling elite have to face the music to face the reality of the barbarism on which their rule is, yep. uh, you know, relies on it. And so, so it's extraordinarily unflattering. And as we know, the kind of uh, hoity toity historical societies that uh, are responsible for cementing historical, you know, memory and, and, and identity and, and narrative throughout. Yes, you know, but, the, but the, Adam, the, but we're in this, but think about it for a second. We're in this period where everybody's talking about the great national reckoning on the history of, of racism. And I, uh, <clears throat> I'm here to tell you, I have a, a whole lot about that in this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. this is a chapter of that 
horrible story that like say NPR uh, or whoever is just not interested in. They're not interested. Why the it, hell not? That's it. You know, it, it's, 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 it's a shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it, the way I mean, you start you started uh, back to, you know, listen. So wait, liberal, so wait, right? here's another way of putting it. So this this thing that this period, the populist period that historians used to regard as one of the only bright spots in Southern history is now something that it's very difficult for us to talk about because it so contradicts what we think populism was. And so it's 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 become difficult for a completely different reason. Anyhow, that's my theory. No, I think I think that's spot on. And, you know, it, it, it raises really um, uncomfortable questions about the uh, inefficacy of the current kind of liberal mainstream strategy. Right. To, to address things like racism and and all the rest of it. Uh, you, you really have to get down to the, the, the roots, the nuts and bolts of who's in power and what they do and and, and how they have power and how they hold it and, and all the rest of it, which we we know the, the sort of uh, <laughs> mainstream establishment liberal class is is. Uh, nervous at best uh, to to go there because well you know probably a lot of ideology because yeah. of their own sort of social and economic sense of belonging most of them are multimillionaires and also because of the the position of their donor class which you yeah. know um is 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 becoming harder and harder to square with a, a deep uh, economic populist well message. i i i i don't want to be too negative about about these people yet I, w- basically what i want them to do is to start paying attention to this chapter of our history because it's absolutely fascinating and it's if you want to understand what happened to uh to the south you have to understand this period that there was this this class rebellion all over the south and the southern elite reacted by and this is the next chapter after the wilmington race riot and it wasn't a race riot it was a bunch of a white gang heavily armed going through the black parts of town uh shooting and murdering and burning and then deep going to city hall and dragging the elected government out, you know, and threatening to lynch people. Yeah, and threatening to lynch people. The little story I have, the story that I have is fast. You know, so you lay your hands on these primary source documents and you have uh, the city of Wilmington letterhead, right, from the late 1800s. And you've got, I'm forgetting names because it's been a little while now. And I mean, mean, uh, that was a a past life of mine, if you will. You understand how old research sort of slips your mind. The past mayor and then literally scrawled out you know, scratched out in the name of the new mayor. So it was Waddell, I believe. Oh, yeah, that's right. He scrawled, led the gang. He led, he led the gang. Right. Waddell's name is scrawled on top of, of the, the mayor that they literally just ran out of town and killed a bunch of his of his buddies. Yep. Yeah, that, that uh, you know, yeah, no, there's, there's no, there was no art to it. It was just blunt, blatant, yeah, it was just brutal. Forced. It was just forced. Force. It's the 19th century. It's <laughs> you know, the South. You're gone. And, Scratch yeah. out your name on the, the letterhead. Then, <clears throat> write my own in. You know, it's almost And then comical. the next thing. And then the next thing they did that because the the Democratic Party had defeated the populists and the the, what's called the fusionists had defeated them at the state level and taken over the legislature with this campaign of racist hysteria that they, by the way, referred to as the white supremacy campaign. And by the way, this used to be a point of pride in North Carolina history. They the, the guy who was the architect of this campaign, the white supremacy campaign, they made his house into a museum. You know, this is uh, Southern history is so um, fraught and so unpleasant to study because it's just it's so repulsive. It ever, I'm sorry, you're you live there, and I it is. Oh no, I'm I'm repulsed uh, as as anybody. I it's, mean, it's, it's like I I would hate it if that was my if that's how I decided to spend my life was studying that stuff. It's it's very oh. yeah. It, 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 but it, they they took their country back, right? I mean, to, to use yeah. a modern uh, you know yeah, or something yeah, like idiom. That. I don't, I they mean, took they, their state back. And then they did. And then once they did it, though, but this is the point. This is what we're coming to. Once they Mm -hmm. did it, they uh, uh, they disenfranchised. They they controlled the legislature. uh, They disenfranchised black people and poor whites. And they in this way ensured that populism would never happen again or something like populism. And this happened all over the South. There's studies of this. You know, this is, again, a very unpleasant subject for people to study. Dis- the, the whole chapter known as disenfranchisement. Uh, s- again, C. Van Woodward wrote the, the original uh, book on this subject, but others have, have followed. And either they did it uh, in North Carolina, like in North Carolina and in a couple of other states, they did it directly to stop populism or fusionism. Or in other places, they did it to, stu- to you know, long after populism was dead, they did it to make sure that something like that never happened again. 
Right. Uh, but this it, was it, there's a whole there's a spike in lynchings. Is, there's a spike yeah, oh, in lynchings oh and all the rest of it. It's, uh, it's, you, it's, it's atrocious. I, but this I, is where disenfranchisement comes from. Right. And I think and, and I'll tell you I'll, to, to maybe to, to venture an answer to your question. I think that there's a lot of race reductionism that happens fr- from the liberal center today in a way that doesn't do justice to the actual racial violence that, that, that took place there. I mean, these people were virulent racists. They were just abhorrently yeah, disgusting, yep. despicable human beings. There can be no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, and yet, I, which makes it really unpleasant to right. Uh, and yet, it, it's not you know the, the idea that that this that this virulent racism came from I don't know like a racism virus you know in their DNA or something like that as opposed to an expression of what they saw as their direct political and economic interests in exactly configure in that historical configuration and that's the part that's lost. We yeah, hang that's, on that's to very the, difficult for us to understand. On, right, because we hang we, on to we, the we, racism virus, but we but we ignore the political and, and economic dimensions of those interests. Okay, so then we come to we come to a different uh, question, which is the whole redefinition of populism, uh, which is, you know, where we are today, we think of populism, the word means mob rule. You know, it means like, uh, you know, Trump supporters, it means um, the uh, the Klan, it means. So we associate uh, racism with uh, with uh, the lower orders, with the, you know, the the uh, the white working class, as they as people say nowadays. And it's this story that you and I have been telling is sort of exactly the opposite. Well, not exactly, but uh, but approximately. It's 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 a much 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 more complicated story, and the party of you know the uh, poor white farmers actually you know was the victim of this in yeah. some ways. You'd have to uh, imagine that Wad, the ghost of Waddell is looking down on the on the way we talk about populists these days and smiling and shaking his head in agreement. He's like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. They are the rabble. They are beneath us. Yeah, they don't exactly. believe they don't deserve exactly. to have power well, and control. And they should, you know, their betters should assert themselves. Over, exactly. Well, there's a whole them, there's a whole know? there's a whole problem with 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 American history, which is how we talk about movements of working class people. And in this sort of progressive, you know, liberal mind nowadays, uh, those movements have been sort of erased. Their achievements are not mentioned. This is the, the last chapter of the people know, you know, this, um, I, I guess, the book that we're here to talk about. Yeah, yeah we're talking around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the last chapter of it is about how, you know, when I was when I was a kid, you'd read these books about the history or, the, or articles about the history of liberalism in America. And a big part of it is about labor and farmer movements, you know, a long time ago and, you know, you know, organized labor in the 1930s. And today, when you talk about that stuff, when you talk about the history of progressivism and there's, by the way, since Trump got elected, there's been all of these books and articles uh, come out about the history of of liberalism and the history of protest and all this stuff. They never mention that. That has been that is very difficult for us to for us modern day liberals to look back at and say, yes, this was the heroic moment, you know, the 1930s or the 1890s or, you know, whatever farm strike you want to talk about. Why is that? Because we are so I mean, whether we're open about it or whether it's subconscious, we know we understand that modern day liberalism is a movement of of uh, uh, that is dominated, I should say, by uh, affluent you know, white collar professionals. Uh, It has other elements, as we all know, but that's who really dominates it. And so it's very difficult for those people to look at working class Americans and say, these were the heroes. Exactly. They, they, they want to, they, they want to see themselves as the heroes. They want to project yeah, people in yeah. their social and technical uh, position back into history and say, ah, these were the people who had all the ideas. Exactly. These were the exactly. people. Who and, the, and so history, history button. is, history is, as it always is, is rewritten around the needs of the present. Yeah. It's a vanity project of, of the people who <laughs> yeah. write it. You Isn't know, that I mean, funny? That's, that's our really discipline, is. right? It's, it's a vanity project for the, it's a vanity project for like the, you it's know, astonishing. Uh, politicians. <laughs> it's astonishing. Let's, let's, I mean, this has been fascinating. And again, look, I, I can't recommend the book enough, uh, you know, to take your, your joke, your, your somewhat half-hearted joke seriously. We should be pushing the book because it's a really important one. Uh, I myself am swamped in books. And so I, I chose to listen to the audio book, which is narrated by yourself. Very yeah, well, hell yeah. I mean, capably. nobody else could do it, right? right. The, my, very, my convoluted absolutely. sentences. Which very, actually- <laughs> very, well, you know, and you, you, you're able to put the inflection. I mean, there, you write with a lot of uh, wit and, 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 uh, a double entendre, all the whatever, all the rest of all these devices, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's very engaging. Well, nice and so yeah, I, I, you're I able try to, and to do that. I, nobody else could read. I mean, my books are meant to be read 
out loud. That's the whole idea. That's how I write. And uh, and so I have to narrate them myself. Yeah, because I've very, discovered very that nobody else. Is- I, well, I, I, you know, I sometimes it. again, speaking of vanity projects, sometimes authors do this, and you wish they wouldn't. But yeah. I was very, yeah. I was very, uh, very pleased that you did, and, and how you did. It. And so I, I suggest if you if you know if you don't want to read the book, listen to the damn thing while you're driving or doing work or doing laundry. It's really fascinating. It's an important history. And I don't want to gloss over it, but I'm going to gloss a bit because we only have that's fine. Uh, but 15 or so minutes left. And I want to talk yeah. about the contemporary conjuncture because this is really why I wanted to bring you on. You've done the rounds on the podcast. Sphere. Oh, oh, 45 um, minutes later, he says, this is really why I want to bring you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I pull you in, you know? Uh, yeah. Just after we tell this awful, to get back awful, the, awful story. Okay. Pull me back in. Uh, we're, uh, <laughs> We're, we're, we're going to talk about the contemporary resonances of this because this is an explicitly explicitly democratic socialist podcast, but it's one that doesn't really abide by the kind of campfire homilies uh, that the left likes to tell itself. And I'm really in a, in a mood. Uh, you know, I go I, I, I vacillate between uh, boosterism and and cynicism and, uh, you know, and, and all the rest of it, just like anybody else uh, over the past four years of having this podcast. But right now I'm really in a, in a mood to splash a lot of cold water. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to kind of ta- have your take Let's on this. Do there's, it. A, there's a there's a there's a, a genre of very capable and young and and, and talented uh, intellectuals mostly uh, who are writing a lot about populism in in the context of the European moment. And so they're using the word populism and they're they're talking about this kind of you know this this tension between right populism, left populism, and categorizing a lot of different movements across Europe and across the world as populist. Uh, you know, of course, you have Tucker Carlson, you know, uh, fighting for some right-wing populism. And I think a lot of people have done a lot of really great work, including my former co-host and friend, and you were on his show, Ben Burgess, has done a lot of work yeah. to kind of debunk the the idea, the, the, the reality of something that could ever be called right-wing populism. Um, yeah. And I'd like you uh, like for you to kind of, kind of double in on that. But, but, you know, populism is being characterized by, I think, some of the, the most serious writers on, on the left as, as a moment of anti-politics. And there's a lot of truth to that, but, but I'm a little bit concerned about the, the, um, the, the lack of historical groundedness there. And this is something that I think my listeners really would like for you to, to dive into, uh, well, to talk look, about I, the contemporary uses of populism and, and how they do or don't have fidelity to history in, in the context right. that we're living in. So, uh, it, and it, it comes back to you know, exactly what we were talking about before, which is how do you understand working class mass movements of working class people, usually in history. And um, I, you know, I would say, first of all, I don't know of any really serious thinkers who use the word populism, uh, who abuse it in that way. It, it, look, I've written my entire, my entire project as an adult has been about understanding the right wing revival and trying to do something about it. I mean, that's, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And uh, uh, I'm here Your to tell you well-timed. that you're in college in the 80s. Your life is well timed. I know. I know. I was. I, 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 well, I was also a Reagan supporter when I was 15, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, I got over that. Uh, I got over that. But it's always it, it, that was sort of what's the matter with Kansas. That's where it started was mm-hmm. I wanted to look back at the 15 year old me and understand why I why I thought this stuff was was OK. Um, you know, and, and how I overcame it. And that was, that was kind of the story that, or that's where the story began, I should say. But, uh, the right wing revolution has not stopped, (laughs) you know, it just barrels forward. And, uh, what I call it, you know, there, there is a, a, there's a reason to use the word populism when you describe it, but it's not the reason that these, these European thinkers use it. Uh, To begin with, populism was the word was invented by Americans by some people in my home state of Kansas and it was it was invented to describe a working class left wing party the sort of uh, an american version of the labor party in england or the labor party in australia or social democrats in germany that sort of thing that's what the word originally meant and if your theory of populism can't explain those guys that original populist movement, then there's something wrong with your theory of populism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the guys who invented the word. Isn't that and the case, though, when Europeans take on, uh, you know, kind of uh, American? Uh, well, they don't. They never talk about that. They never. They almost. They almost never yeah. talk about about that movement. In, it's, in, I mean, it's a product of like American America. cultural, American culture, and academic imperialism. If we're if we're well, to be honest, well, so we have to take a little bit of blame for it. But at the same time, it becomes yes, wielded it, by it, it is. But we're not going to have time to get into that story right, here about yeah. how this happened. But it did happen by a kind of misreading of American history. It's like one of these, uh, I, I give me a, there's got to be a parallel for this or another example of this where people misread a chapter in history 
like it's like a mistranslation or something. Yeah. Well, I'd say the civil rights. It. I'd say the civil rights movement because I've studied that too. That gets it. That that narrative. That model gets exported to other countries, wherein the the social and economic forces are very different, and so you're using the same language. And the same kind of like moral righteousness, like let's be honest, like they're on the right side of the of, of history, I think. Uh, but 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 it doesn't it lacks the kind of historical clarity. Well, I, I was going to say it's like it's like when a word gets translated wrong and then goes down through, you know, gets people pick up on the mistranslation and only use the word in this mistranslated way. And, it, and then eventually the word, you know, that's just what it becomes. And that's sort of what happened with populism. Only it wasn't just an innocent mistranslation. It was done deliberately by a famous American historian called Richard Hofstadter back in the 1950s. And, um, but look, here's the, here's where, uh, here's where I agree with that. And, and then we'll talk about where I disagree, but what is significant about the, the Reaganite turn, the, 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 the great shift, the great shift to the right, which you saw with Reagan, you saw it with Nixon actually before Reagan, and you see it with Trump. It's still going strong is that the, uh, the, the right wing forces have, you know, look, these people got their ass handed to them in the 1930s by the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt, by the, you know, by the party of the people, by the working, by the, by the labor movement, etc. And they were, you know, historically, they were beaten. And they, in the 1970s, they started figuring out a way to reach out to working class people and to lure them in to the conservative coalition. Nixon was sort of the pioneer of this. Uh, he stole the idea from George Wallace, but Nixon and you know his advisors Kevin Phillips, uh, they were they sort of started this. But Nixon wasn't a real right winger. That didn't come until you had Reagan, and Reagan really pushed the conversation far to the right. But was very very good at doing this kind of pseudo workerist, um, you know, uh, pseudo populist way of speaking. Look, he he. Reagan had this folksy manner. He was like a Frank. He's like right out of a Frank Capra movie. He seemed like a man of the 1930s. He used to keep a bust. Didn't he keep a bust of Franklin Roosevelt on his desk? I mean, he would try to mimic Franklin Roosevelt, by the way, as does Trump. He was a Hollywood uh, liberal. I mean, and Trump was a was a New York liberal, right? Yeah. For, and, and, I mean, the, the yeah, resonance yeah. is there. Wow, like yeah. that was in real time. Yeah, you guys but, saw but these that guys, connection there, being made, there, but but there's there something a, to it. There is a distinct strategy going on right. here where these people are filling a market niche. If you'll allow me to use that term, they're filling a market niche that used to be filled by the left. That is true. That is happening. That's what's 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 the matter with Kansas is all about. It's as the Democratic Party abandons its traditional sort of uh, uh, position, its traditional constituency in the you know working class. Uh, as the Democratic Party abandons them and reaches out to these new groups, you know, uh, white collar professionals, which they've done openly. As they've done that, the Republican Party has done everything in their power to reach out to these uh, to the to the to the people who are left behind. And they have been massively successful at it uh, to the point where now you you have this sort of, you know, people just refer to uh, the white working class as Donald Trump's base, as though that's just natural for 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 working class people to support this right winger and and they have no idea that that's not always the way it was that's you know and so that's the sense in which it's in which it's 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 useful uh what the the, the problem is the idea that that um all movements of working class people this is sort of the, the broader way that the word populism is used all movements of working class people have are kind of proto fascist i was watching a TV documentary the other day about fascism in Europe. I mean, a really lowbrow documentary. And they referred to Hitler as populist. <laughs> I, know. I know. And it's like, no, the populist at that time was the guy that kicked Hitler's ass, known as Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> you know, I, I always, I all, in every one of these interviews, I always talk about, I mean, the culture of World War II in America was intensely populist. In Europe, I mean, they were turning against democracy, but we embraced democracy in this profound way. And I always remind people of Bill Malden, the cartoonist in World War II, Willie and Joe, the average GIs. All the great World War II novels, with a few exceptions, are about enlisted men. They're not about officers. You know, I was reading Norman Mailer's um, The Naked and the Dead. 
the other day. And it's all, you know, they hate the officers. The officers are reactionaries. You know, the officers are these incredible, awful right wingers, you know. And uh, today, if we had to understand, we, we would reverse the equation completely because today we identify with the officers because liberals are society's officer class we, we can't even seriously <laughs> so we can't true. even we can't even understand uh, you know we can't even understand the culture so of world true. war ii anymore it doesn't make sense to us anymore so you true. know yeah yeah they would have yeah no the, this, yeah, the, the, the resonances are astonishing that's crazy so let's get to the, the kind of coup de gras the final question the the kind of final consideration i mean after reading your work and revisiting your stuff uh you know having read uh, what's the matter with kansas many many years ago and kind of coming back to the people know uh, rereading, listen, liberal, and these are all you guys. If, if you all in the audience haven't read these, you really need to. I mean, they're they're really important books, and you know, I, I my my audience tends to 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 bend towards the kind of dusty books uh, crowd. I've got you know uh, ten anywhere from tenured professors to to like uh, you know people who stock the shelves in grocery stores and trying to yeah. start unions, uh, you know, in their in their, hey, in their yeah. workplaces. You know, it, it, it yeah. runs the gamut, but the interest is there and really serious kind of engaged scholarly work and. And and this stuff is is just as important, you know. It, it probably lacks the footnotes, but it, it but it but doesn't lack the the research, you know. It's it's bent towards a popular I audience. I, I am, um, I'm often criticized for my footnotes. <laughs> People think I'm an excessive footnoter. Well, yeah, I guess it depends on if you read uh, books from uh, the the popular press or the academic press. Uh, yeah, for the academic yeah, yeah. press, that's you know, you're, right. That's right. It's a, it's a popular approach. Uh, but but that's to say that you know. Revisiting your work, particularly the way that you've done the circuit now, um, you know, I said caught you on the Matt Taibbi show, Matt and Katie show and and a couple others. And and it sort of made me realize, you know, damn it, you know, like maybe, you know, I'm from this rural south. I'm from the place where populism was born. You know, I'm from Western Virginia, where, you know, there are many, many uh, opportunities to even perhaps you know, chart an alternative history in the United States, one wherein there was an alternate power block that could have stood up yeah. against the Confederacy, even uh, the bourbon yeah. class. And yeah, and, well, and West, are, up are that, you talking about West Virginia? What West? I'm they from did. Western Virginia. <laughs> yeah, well, well West did, Virginia but did. Up, but look at them now. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? It's astonishing that flip. And how does that flip happen? How do you go from the, the root of kind of hill, what I call hillbilly populism? You know, yeah. and, and and the the kind of strength of trade unionism. Jeez, it, and the it wasn't all that long ago that this was. It, it West Virginia was one of the most democratic states in America, and not just democratic. These were radicals. Absolutely, no, no question. Absolutely, hillbilly populist. You know, um, uh, in, in in the kind of solidarity and all the rest of it that goes yep. uh, with it culturally and economically and politically, and it and it's all gone. It's flipped, turned upside down, uh, as uh, Fresh Prince might have said. Uh, you know, today. We ha- we see the the rise of, of of the Bernie wave, and we see the rise of of socialist, democratic socialist, and left wing and progressive outfits such as, you know, Jacobin and uh, and, and and Chapo Trap House, who that has like three hundred thousand, you know, four, half a million listens to every episode. You have this burgeoning kind of uh, class of of, of well educated kind of uh, class traders in some respects. Many of us, uh, present company, may be excluded. Uh, more of a lower middle class, working class kid myself uh, from the mountains. But uh, but but, you know, today we don't talk a lot about this, this populist fusionist kind of approach, um, you know, and, and if we're not talking today about building a coalition, OK, not only of like downwardly mobile millennial types who have too much college debt, but farmers you and know, owners of small enterprise and, of course, gig workers yeah. and, of course, organized labor, which is really the, 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 the linchpin of, of much of this uh, to, to be successful. But, but going beyond that and into even like, you know, like I said, you know, small business owners. Why is it that small – I say this on Twitter and I don't know why this is so controversial in like democratic socialist sectors, to, spheres to say this, even progressive sectors. Why is it so controversial to, to, to suggest that uh, – Small business owners have very little in common with the billionaire class in the United States right now. Yeah. So why is it that uh, over the course of the last 30 to 35 years, they have been, uh, you know, been made to believe that their fate aligns with the fate with that of the billionaire class? It's astonishing. It should, yeah, that's it should a really, never that's a really have good, been the case. That's a really good question. I have a friend here in D.C. that talks about that all the time because it's a for him, it all comes down to antitrust. So there's, you know, different elements of the look, a lot of what you're talking about is we've lost track of the history of the left in this country. You, you know, mm-hmm. one of the problems of having a left that comes out of academia is that it mm-hmm. understands the world in these theoretical ways rather <laughs> than right. these sort of pragmatic That's ways. Right. And populism is um, it was not a theoretical movement. It's not Marxism. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they, right. they, they, uh, these were, you know, this is a farmer labor movement. They did read a lot of books, but it yeah, tended they read Marx, but, but they did they, read well, Marx, you know, but they weren't, they weren't like, they weren't into Marx. I mean, you'd right. see Marx quoted in their newspapers from time to time, but they were, well, not, how could they be? We we're talking about the historical context. Well, right. the, the, the no, historical the economic did, political context was, they not did have, that. A, they did have a theorist that they referred to all the time, but that was Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, it's yeah. very, it's very yeah. American. I mean, they, these were, these were uh, these were people that were deep in the American grain. And if they Jefferson have, wrote about farms, Marx right. wrote about Manchester, England. Right. I mean, right. so, you know, historical, right. social, economic context is, is everything. Well, they, they, yeah, but they and, and if they had a sort of proximate uh, a, a historical episode that they all knew about and they referred to, at least in Kansas, it was the Civil War. So mm. Kansas was an abolitionist state, you know, settled by abolitionists and the, the a lot of the. You know, the populists, that's a lot of their leaders. That's who they were. They were ab- older abolitionists who thought this was the next this was the next reform movement. Uh, and so there was there was tons of that sort of sentiment. And, but it, what, what, it was all American. What I'm saying is that it was mm. not it was it didn't come out of graduate school. You know, a lot of them, they, some of their leaders were educated people, but they were not big. Right. Theorists. They were about building a movement. And uh I, I would have to say the same with uh, the the you know the great uh, left moment in American life, the 1930s. You know, there yeah, there were a lot of by that time there were a lot of people that had read Marx in America. And, you know, I I read a lot of them, but mm-hmm. but by and large, you're talking about uh, again a sort of massive populist uprising, a sort of coming together of uh, you know farmers, workers, small business. This is what the New Deal was, and. Uh, you know, we've really lost sight of that history for a bunch of the reasons that we've discussed on this show. Part of it being this sort of un- unfortunate theoretical background, academic background of so many of us, uh, and part of it being uh, the, the sort of the class composition of leftism mm-hmm. or of liberalism, right. at, where we like to imagine our people like us as the heroes of history, not people like you know, the, those people in West Virginia that you were talking about. Right. Exactly. I talk, I, I talk way too much about stuff that I don't really have a full. I should just shut up right now. No, no. Well, who, who does? I mean, who does? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there, it, who's doing this work right now? Very few people. They, there was kind of a, you know, there's a, a niche interest. Of course, you know, Hillbilly Elegy just came out on Netflix, you know, and I so there's, there's a it. whole, there's a whole backwards kind of approach to a lot of this stuff, but yeah. it is really fascinating. And, and, and I got, I'll just say, you know, you're revisiting, not only just revisiting your work, but also reading, of, of course, the people know, uh, or listening to it in, in, in my case. Uh, is, is really forcing me, a, a, a formerly dusty, uh, formerly hyper-theoretical uh, grad student, uh, to get real about the political moment that's in front of us and to start thinking seriously not only about organizing workers and the kind of more, tra- quote, traditional, you know, Manchester-style Marxist uh, historical figure, yeah. but also thinking about, you know, small proprietors, uh, farmers, uh, obviously gig workers, small enterprise, owners of small enterprises. I, I yeah. own a small business so, myself, and I'll tell you right now, my political and economic interests do not align <laughs> with, <laughs> with the billionaire, the billionaire <laughs> class. You know, my my, my, my yeah. rate of taxation and the kind of regulations and the kind of responsibilities that are placed on me in this kind of island of every man, woman, and child for him or herself, it does not, uh, you know, align with, uh, of course, not a Republican narrative, but certainly not even a kind of establishment Democrat narrative right now. I know. And so where do we uh, fall? Where, where do you, where and do how, do, how do Democrats lose those people? It's it, that's where a really good question. I I am I've never never really thought seriously about about that, but I, I can tell you a, the beginning of an answer is is antitrust. Antitrust was the, oh, who is the Supreme Court judge back in the seventies? <sighs> this is I'm my sorry, Supreme Court history. Is, is yeah, is I'm blanking on his name, but he said that, that that the antitrust laws of America were basically the Magna Carta of small business. Mm-hmm. Um, you can mm-hmm. Google that quote, and, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name, but th- that's uh, I mean. And and small business obviously knew it. Right. But we have given up on enforcing those laws and we've allowed, you know, I mean, we're living in a moment of incredible concentration and monopoly power. I mean, monopoly power like like we haven't seen in 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 100 years. You know, the power of Silicon Valley is it dwarfs, you know, the power of John D. Rockefeller at his height. Uh, And it's 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 terrifying. And every small business owner surely is aware of that. Uh, But the thing is that it's been antitrust has been gone for so long. uh, People don't even remember like 
what it was. Now, you know, you could bring that constituency back tomorrow. You know, Joe Biden, there's all of these things he could do to rebuild the old Democratic uh, Party constituency, you know, the the Roosevelt coalition, if he wanted to. Uh, the thing is that you've got look at the people advising him. These are people that are that 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 hate and despise and fear the New Deal. I mean, they wrote they like they wrote they wrote books about like Bruce Reed, one of his closest. But there's a guy that actually wrote a book about how they have to get away from the New Deal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like that's just not going to happen. Well, if it, it could happen, it would be a it would be a miracle if it did. Yeah. I mean, the people used to turn away from the New Deal uh, were, you know, people in the in the in the, jo- the Johnson, the, the kind of young, plucky Johnson uh, staffers, you know, who who are moving away from shovel ready projects to kind of um, more uh, like community action uh, programs. But hell, those things today are like straight Marxist revolutionary. I know. That sounds pretty this, good. It now. does. <laughs> it absolutely does. You know, the great society, like, bring yeah. it on, baby. I'm a socialist. I'm not supposed to say that. No, it, it was, has a it lot was, of it was later. It was but, later. It was in the 70s and 80s and and in the 90s when when yeah. these people were like you know we got we got to abandon the new deal that was gary hart's sort of there's mantra a, there's, a, there's, the, an, there's the an incremental of the watergate decline. babies uh, yeah, there's an the, incremental even, decline if there's no there's no question that, that we've witnessed and, and every generation moves further and further and now we're, we're at well the, it's the, the story of just, our lives so i used to think that the story of our lives was the great right turn and of course it is that's the most consequential thing but the great right turn cannot just be laid at the feet of Reagan and Thatcher. Uh, It's bigger than that. And a a huge part of the blame uh, has to go to the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't know about the UK, but uh, in this country anyways, it has to go to these people who were saying, uh, you know, who took the opportunity of the Vietnam War to basically say we have to dump organized labor. And, you know, as I've said many times, I understand why they did that. And they had no way of knowing in 1972 or whatever, no way of knowing what they were what they were putting us on the road towards, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) but they did it and it was a disaster. And when you want to go back and do the accounting and figure out how the hell we got so screwed, uh, you have to you that's you know, that's in some ways the starting point. Yeah. I mean, I think if nothing else in in, in summation here, I've got to let you go. If nothing else, I think that we. You know, the people listening to this, people reading your books just need to be very prepared to make the argument over the coming five years, especially 10 years, uh, that uh, there's just no sense in, in right wing populism. It's not a thing. It doesn't work. It, it's not real. It's a it's a figment. I, of people's I know. Imagination. Even, as, even as we say it's not that a coherent, it's not even a coherent, as we say that, the, the thing is that, that Trumpism is powerful and Trumpism is yeah. is dynamic. And it's I mean, look what he's doing right now. It's it's insane, right. you know, and he, this is he, he's leaving the White House in a couple of in a month and a half here. No, no question about it. But he's going to be back. He and his supporters are going to be back. Yeah. And you have to be thinking, how do you cut the legs out from under this movement? Right. And to do that, you have to understand where the Democratic Party went wrong, how it lost mm-hmm. these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because these, like West Virginia, we were talking about before, these are former Democrats. You right. know, these are these are people that are members of my family that are voting for. Them. How the hell did we lose these people? Uh, and you know. They have to be. That has to be what the Biden people are thinking about. But of right. course, I can almost guarantee you it isn't. So it isn't. You know, and, and don't don't let the ghost of Waddell, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, smile upon our contemporary moment as yeah. we nod in agreement with the authorized commentators of of today and in saying, well, you know, these right wing populists uh, behind Trump, and it's like, you know, th- this no, don't grant, don't grant them. Uh, their, uh, you know, their own ideology as we try to debunk it or, or try to challenge it. That's what a lot of these mainstream exactly. liberals are trying to do. They're granting an ideology Look, even the, the, as they're trying to Can I just say the, the, the real answer to fake populism, and I've said this, this is in What's the Matter with Kansas, the real answer to fake populism is <laughs> the real deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Fake populism is easily trumped by real populism. No question. And, uh, you know, the, the day that, I mean, I've been arguing this my entire adult life, and I am sick of it. But the day that it dawns on, you know, on on Biden and company that that is the case, you know, then we will start digging our way, start climbing our way out of this hole. I almost said digging our way into this. <laughs> All right. I think I better shut up. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll let you go. I know you're in high demand right now with COVID. Of course, you're not doing the book tours and not talking to people across the country and across the world. But uh, you are doing the podcast circuit. And I really appreciate you taking uh, some some time out of your valuable schedule here and uh, thoroughly recommend, heavily recommend these books to people. 
And, uh, you know, I, I hear you're not writing about politics anymore. And this is yeah, why I trust oh, I'm you. so tired of it. You know? I tweeted this out a couple <laughs> earlier this week. I said, you know, I heard I heard Thomas say on, on another podcast that he's sick and tired of politics. And that's why I trust him, because anybody who really <laughs> anybody who seriously likes this stuff and it doesn't you know, make them profoundly miserable on some level. I don't trust. Well, don't trust Adam, them. the thing is that I've just I've said what I came to say <laughs> and I've said it and then I've said it from a different angle and mm. then from a, a third angle and now a fourth angle. And, you know, and. and now look at it from here and and you know let's do it with the uh, illustrations from the 1890s and let's right. do it with illustrations from the 1930s and i'm done the beatings will continue though thomas until morale improves <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right well it's been a pleasure uh come back on dps uh, you know here if, if if you choose to write about politics or whatever you choose to write about uh, underwater basket weaving i'm here for it you're an engaging writer you're a really interesting guy and i appreciate it very much thanks again thank you for having me And that concludes today's interview with Thomas Frank. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As always, if you would like to hear the B-sides that appear on the Patreon subscriber-only thread, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. You'll get continuing episodes of a new series that I'm running called This American Left. And that series differs quite markedly with the kind of discussions and themes that you've heard on the A-sides over the past couple of weeks. Whereas on the A-sides, I've been trying to you know, develop a much more kind of popular, mainstream, coalitional, liberal, uh, progressive kind of understanding of the moment that we're in right now. On the B side, particularly this American Left series, we are going in on some intra-left conversation and debate. For example, I had on uh, Mora and Conrad from the Class Unity Caucus inside of DSA. I look forward to having on perhaps other caucuses in DSA. I look forward to hosting other chats about DSA, other left organizations, trade unions, you name it. We're going to go all in on this American left. I look forward to that and patrons are going to get all of it. If you are not a patron, you're going to miss out and that's very sad. Uh, There's one way to fix it. Head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. All right. To the patrons, I'm going to do my best to get a fun chat uh, to you guys, uh, you know, towards the end of the weekend uh, about uh, some more intra left shenanigans and to the rest of you, we'll see you on the A side. Take care.